Hi, Adam. Thank you very much for joining us on the Pocket Mastermind podcast. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thank you for the invite. Really appreciate it. Good. Um, now, you do a lot of work in all areas of property. Um, so we wanted to invite you on today, really, to talk about how you're seeing the impact to the, the property market from an investor point of view um, and also from a, an owner point of view um, with everything that's going on with COVID-19 and, and all of the shutdowns. So it'd be good to get your um, experiences from, from firsthand and, and possibly that of um, other people that you, you work with and you, you've got within your network. Yeah, so so just uh, breaking down the question into two parts, really, you've got the impact and what, what do I feel COVID's had? Uh, of course, the impact, it's difficult to tell, really. It's clearly it's had an immediate impact with the fact that banks are not lending uh, so easily at the moment, and that's understandable because they're dealing with, a lot of it's still with their workforces, uh, dealing with a lot of payment holidays, so they just don't have the power to go out there and do uh, conduct surveys or, or start new mortgage applications and so on. So that's clearly had an impact on the market. Then you go and take a look at estate agents. They can't do viewings, albeit that some are doing virtual viewings. So that's good if you're looking to move in, in the next few months. So that's clearly had an impact as well. So overall, yeah, the impact has come and, and, and nobody saw it coming. Of course they didn't. Uh, we're overdue a, a pandemic for quite some time by the sounds of it. And uh, we, we live on a, on a small spinning ball in space and uh we, we share this planet with other things so uh you know stuff occurring out of the blue is, is, is going to happen so really i think what we have to look at now is and what i get a lot of questions is what's going to happen to the property market in the future and that's very difficult um who knows uh, we, we haven't faced this before yeah it, it's it's for me always trying to look that far ahead is it's crystal ball town you may as well flick the coin at the end of the day to me the principles of investment still don't change really regardless of whatever environment that you're in at the time and that has always been for me personally and so this comes to your second part of your question where you're saying about an ownership and how am i how am i coping with it with my properties and what impact has that on me well i've always planned to have lots of contingency so at the end of the day, every single investment that I make, I always assume the worst case. And I always assume, uh, I always like to have multiple exits on a property deal, whether that's sell, whether it's renting it to different uh, demographics, whether you can um, extend it or build out further. Or there's so, there's so many different angles in property. That's what I love about the investment type itself. So to me, Going back to the first question of the impact, what am I now doing as an investor? Well, it's not stopping me at all because the principles haven't changed. I'm still looking at things in the worst case scenario. I'm going to assume that COVID is going to last for a very long time. What does that mean? Well, lenders are going to struggle to lend out. Okay, well, if you've been in property investment for a, for a while, you can get investment from institutions, but you can also get it from private investors as well. So cash is king at this moment in time. What else can you do? Well, rather than trying to purchase property at the moment, a lot of people when they purchase they're trying to control well you can control property with contracts whether that's option contracts or you could do exchange with delayed completion and lots of things like that so it's really just about changing what kind of tools you're using in your toolkit from a go see a estate agent put an offer in and buy it with a mortgage to go find maybe something commercial or a business that needs help maybe negotiating with them to maybe uh 
take an option contract to buy their, their unit from them at a later date. Or maybe you could joint venture with the owners and say to them, uh, if, if you've got planning experience, for example, you might be able to turn their office block into residential. And in a year or two's time, you might be able to give them even more profit uh, because you're bringing a skill set to the equation. So it's really about thinking outside of the box. The main principles being that you always prepare for the worst case example, but you're also trying to control. And provided you can do that, then, then happy days are really. I think the opportunities have changed. People have been shell-shocked by COVID because they didn't see it coming. That's fine. But if you're an experienced investor, you're used to dealing with shocks. You rapidly get back off the floor and you start trying to see the angles and, and see what, what you can do. And I think the overriding um, sense that you should have is, or at least this is how I apply it, whenever I do an investment, I'm always looking to help people, whether that's helping owners, whether that's uh, helping out tenants. And that's why I've always got very good deals in my, my kind of investment career so far of, of about 12 years. Mm-hmm. And so what have, what have you, have there been any changes in your, in your strategy that you were pursuing in the short term uh, in regards to your portfolio? Is there a, any, any, change in direction that you've you've now made and it kind of you know we talked we did a live event on friday last week and there was a lot of talk around pivoting mm-hmm. um in business and it'd be interesting to see what you've now done um in terms of that as well yeah definitely so we had some service accommodation units uh, we were renting those from landlords and we have handed those back because, well, we were given one month's notice to hand those back. So once again, we had contingency in the sense that we had the ability to hand them back fairly quickly. So we've done that for the time being. We're still on very good terms with the landlords as well. Um, if the market comes back up, then we will go back to them again and we will potentially start our service accommodation units again. But at this precise moment in time, it doesn't work. They understand that point of view as well, that they're very familiar. Uh, we've had great working relationships. It's just a business decision. Uh, and unfortunately, um, will that leave them out of pocket? Potentially, it could do, although they can go and get mortgage holidays and, of course, they can let their properties out to uh, standard homeowners anyway, or, sorry, standard um, not homeowners, as a, just as a standard standard rental. Or in, in one of our cases, one of our service accommodation units, we've actually uh, given it to an NHS worker for the month uh, so, so that we can, we can help them out as well. So, yeah, it's, de- it's definitely had an impact on that side of the business. But once again, we've got the contingencies in place that we've been able to pivot very rapidly. Does it change uh, what I'm looking to buy? Yes, absolutely. I'm not particularly looking at residential at the moment. I'm looking more towards commercial just because commercial owners will understand things like option contracts and uh, exchange with delayed completions. Those type of concepts are a lot easier than residential. Uh, A lot of homeowners don't understand those. And so it's quite difficult to, articulate that, that message across and likewise there's going to be a lot of owners who are going to be no I'm holding out sorry um, I, I'm, I'm going to wait till the market comes back up so yeah it's definitely changed from a residential purchase strategy to commercial although we were buying commercial and residential anyway but the, the onus is far more on, on commercial and then the other side is planning as well because planning will take you the rest of our three three to nine months anyway so if you can start uh, touching on projects where you've got planning opportunities, then yeah, start putting those in now because the, the, the generalized market looks like it's slowed down. The development side of things is slowing down. Um, Supply is an issue, bricks and cement and so on. So there's probably a lot of the bigger house builders who are, who are not either going to be building out or, or, or not going to be looking to do any more planning projects in the short term. So it's a good opportunity there as well. 
what do you think the knock-on effect of all of this delay in development's going to be once things do start to kick back in? Do you think that developers, some developers aren't going to survive through to the build completion? I think uh, short answer is yes. I don't think I don't think all of them will make it. Mm-hmm. You've got probably a lot of builders who've got or a lot of development companies have got bridging finance. It really just depends on what relationship they have with the finance companies at the moment. Mm-hmm. You kind of hope it was a good one. You kind of hope everybody's in the same boat, but not, not all not all companies are created equal, let's just say. I think in terms of the impact, of course, you've, you're slowing down the rate at which you're building. That doesn't change. That doesn't, COVID's not going to slow down the amount of kids that people are going to have. If anything, no. you're probably going to find you more kids. <laughs> so I'm going to go through the roof in another time. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the COVID boom, right? And yeah. if anything, you're then going to have even more demand on already constrained supply. Yeah. So really you're talking about a lagged effect. So it, it, it's like anything with investment. If you can hold it out long enough, it, it's really, you know, where do you sell? Yeah. And at any one point in time, if you're taking the principles of investment, if you can hold indefinitely through ups and downs, then you're in a strong position to sell when you need to. Unfortunately, the development game, and I come from a builder's family, so the problem with the building game is that you go through loads of red tape to just try and even get planning and building out and take tons of risk. And then your exit typically is that you sell your units on. Well, you're not selling them now and you're probably not selling for the next three, four months. So then you have to say, well, developers, you know, if they've got war chests, they'll be fine because they can hold out for long enough. Uh, if they haven't, then unfortunately, yeah, that they, they're going to hit the wall or they're going to struggle. I'd say one theme I've definitely seen amongst all of this, and it ranges from small businesses, individuals, right the way to, to large listed organizations that really don't have the cash supply or reserve to to get through very long periods of time at all very relatively short you know you look at some of the even airline business has always been treacherous but you know the slightest knock within the first couple of weeks ba was struggling and and it's quite concerning i think if anything this provides a great opportunity to teach some lessons <laughs> at least into i think like we, you know i've talked before and you've had some good contingency plans in place and i think that's a, the a clear message i think that to deliver to people in this time is if we can get through this there will be another one at some point of some description in our <clears throat> lifetimes it may not be as extreme as this or it may be worse we just don't know um but we've got to accept that they do come yeah, massively and, and definitely seeing a lot of companies who are already going close to, to, to bankruptcy is quite a surprise to myself as well. But these are also, these are businesses, not necessarily investments. And there's, there's a distinct difference between the two, of course, because a business is where you're selling something. And ultimately, if people aren't buying it, then cash flow is going to wipe out fairly quickly. And so when I was in, in when I started my investment journey 12 years ago, I'd always gone, well, I want a, as close to passive as you can get. Property isn't passive, but as close to passive as possible. This is a good buzzword to sell courses online for uh, dropshipping and various other things. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. don't think, I, don't think, I don't think there is passive. You've got to do something somewhere on the line. I think, I think the problem is, is that if, you, if you're going to make money in property or any form of investment that requires work, 
and inherently if, and the reason why it requires work is because it's inherently complex that's why you make money you make money out of complexity so for people to go essentially i want to sit on my ass and do nothing to generate a load of money well that's what everybody who wants to do winning the lottery wants to do yeah. um I, I get it but you, you there isn't enough complexity in it and and so whenever i hear passive or it's easy or you can do it in two seconds flat it's a bit like trying to say become a surgeon by following this one day course it, if if you were a surgeon who did a one day course i'm not coming to you <laughs> yeah. not happening so <laughs> Uh, yeah, so going back to your, your original question, uh, yes, there are a lot of businesses like that, but they rely heavily on cash flow. But of course, they've clearly got huge overheads. And they're, they're, I'd rather say stack it high and sell it cheap. That makes it sound like it's bad industry, but it's not. It, it relies on high volume and high turnover. And of course, uh, you, the, the interesting one is all the risk assessments that were done, all, all, the, all the business planning, all the smart and pestle analysis and everything, and, and nobody's accommodated for pandemic. And clearly that's now it's probably going to be on everybody's radar. But once again, the principle is the same. I think if you took the principle or my particular principle in investment, which is contingency planning, I, I still have an intrinsic asset. So unlike mm -hmm. stocks and shares, yes, they are more liquid. So you can move them out quicker. And I know people who are very successful in, in stocks and shares. Fair enough. But to me, I like to have an intrinsic asset, touch and feel it, can adjust it, can paint it. A pretty color and, and or, or attract more rent you know i can do something with it and if the world's all dead and buried and it's gone and i don't know atomic war happens provided the house hasn't blown up i've, I've got a fortress to live in because there's something physically there so and that's why i've always been not gonna worry are you by that point <laughs> You're yeah, well, yeah this is exactly it so so for me that's what i've always loved about property and i think if you're if you are trying to run a business there yeah uh, clearly having the cash reserves is tough but also if you're in industries like the food business uh, especially supermarkets well it's probably a massive lifeline really because they were working on very thin margins and they pan out an absolute bumper year delivery for example as well massive uh, there's some companies that have done extremely well out of this yeah. amazon's going to do ridiculously well out of it so uh, I, unfortunately that is the business world it's it's i don't say fitness to the survival that's probably the um, yeah. survival of the fittest rather but that's, that's how I've always viewed as business. And so I've never overly been fascinated in business. I've been far more fascinated in investment. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think you're right. I think um, these things come along as a bit of a, kind of an evolutionary phase, right? Because I think there's been a lot of the way business has been done has been a little bit out of date. And I think this kind of thing coming along, you'll see how some businesses thrive and some don't is probably because the ones that are thriving are, are more in the future than in the past. And I think that's where you're, you're going to see some transition. Yeah. It's that adaptability <clears throat> once again. And I, I say contingency planning, adaptability in business is probably better than contingency planning. I mean, you, you, they talk about pivoting, which of course you need to do. And there are some businesses that will be able to pivot far, far quicker because they have less stuff, stuff costs and they don't have buildings everywhere and, and yada, yada. Right? I, think, <clears throat> I think when it comes down to seeing how businesses adapt to this in the future, I think, people, I, I think businesses will become leaner. I think they will recognize that they don't need lots of certain things. So they don't need lots of commercial office blocks. People can work from home. 
I think the benefits are we see probably a massive drop in terms of pollution levels. So that will be a big incentive for people to stay at home. I think the other thing to look into is the psychological effect of people being distanced for quite some time. It will almost probably see, seem alien to be in a group and to shake each other's hand and give each other a hug. That's going to take a while to get over. Ooh, and right. unfortunately, bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, and, and either everybody's going to forget rather rapidly or there are genuinely going to be quite, quite large parts of the population who struggle psychologically with the idea of, of, of doing anything like that in the future because of, you know, especially if you think you've had somebody close to you who's died because of the invisible enemy. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to business, uh, the high street, everything else like that after this. Either everybody's going out and having a massive party or it's going to take quite some time to get back to the norm. And you'll probably find a lot of this where people can communicate over video is, 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 is going to happen. So really what, what impact does that have on, on safer things like the high street that was already dying? That's probably going to completely go anyway. Um, or you're going to see governments turn around and go, we want to keep the high street alive. We're going to cut back on the ridiculous business rates that we've been charging and, and, and hopefully re-inject a lot more money back into local economy and getting people out of the house. So it could be a really great thing for, for business. It could be an absolutely devastating thing for certain businesses. But once again, where's money made? Through evolution and change. So inherently it's going to occur. So whenever I hear businesses who say, well, we weren't prepared for change, I say, well, that, that, that's a real core part of your business. You should have been prepared. Not, not COVID-19, albeit, I get, I get that. That's, that's, that's totally different but they should be able to be adaptable and to be able to change. And I think that's probably what will come in a lot more is, is change management. Can you be more lean? Can you adjust quicker? Can you, can you turn on, on, you know, can you pivot quicker? I think that will be far more important in those in a, uh, early initial stages of, of business planning and, uh, and, and for businesses that are already um, established. You touched on something there that I've talked to a few people around, to a few people about recently is the big, the big office blocks house huge numbers of people and like you say more people are now working remotely a lot of businesses that said ah, we can't we can't work remotely it doesn't it just wouldn't work they now are and i'm sure they're probably doing a lot better than they expected that they otherwise would have done what do you think from a, a landlord's perspective potentially that would that would mean uh, as people maybe businesses start to look at the size of the overhead of a, of a large office block and think, well, is, do we need to continue to, to pay for that? If you, what we, as a perspective, as a, as a landlord, how would you, how would you think about that? So it's definitely come across uh, in our team. I, I have an architect who's on the team and we've actually been looking into developing similar to a lot of the co-working spaces that have been existing in London, which is you've got a bed and a shared kitchen and, and so on, but bigger than those and, and having dedicated office spaces within residential apartment blocks. So you've almost got a, a mini co-office space, a bit like when you have a gym yeah. in, in, in your block of flats and actually having that co-office working space because exactly like you identify, I think a lot of businesses will realize that actually it's bloody expensive to run a commercial building and can you get far more done at home, uh, is it cheaper for people to stay at their houses? Yes, it probably is. What's the work-life balance? A lot better because people are spending a lot more time with their family and their kids. What does that do mentally for people? Uh, it's actually of massive benefit to the workforce. What will that have as an impact in the longer term? I don't know because we don't have enough data. So if you run it for a year and then compare the two together, 
who knows, you might find that actually productivity drops because people aren't in the office. Yeah. They're being distracted all the time because kids are in the background or they've got to go out and do some shopping or whatever. And actually you don't get enough done. It's a very fragmented workplace. Actually, maybe, maybe it doesn't. You might find that a lot of people drive back to wanting to be in an office block. They want to be at work when they want to be at work. They want to be at home when they want to be at home. It's definitely a blurring of the life. And, and I came from, I, I was a teacher for quite a number of years I came from the teaching industry and then I worked I've been in property full-time for about five years and there's definitely a balance that has to be had at home and there has to be very very clearly defined areas in the house and including restrictions on when people can come through so, so my son will come into the office where I am now to, to help me shred paperwork and other bits and pieces he's only four but he wants to do that type of thing and he wants to know what's going on in the office but likewise, I have to say to him, look, when the door's shut, you know, daddy's working. And likewise, my calendar has to be very regimented. So I'm not going, oh, look, there's Netflix and a sofa over there. I'll go and have lunch and watch hours of it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not. Hours. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm quite a disciplined person anyway. I, I do work, I do work hard. I do stick to, stick to my, my calendar, but I, I do have to make sure I'm planned because if I, if I don't plan everything down, then don't get me wrong, I, I'll get distracted like anybody else really. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. There's some really interesting space. And you touched on there, you kind of started property what, 12 years ago. You've been in full-time now. Tell us a bit about your, your journey into property, how you got started, um, and, and kind of what you, what you do now, and what you, you know, kind of what you, what you focus on your portfolio, and, what does, and a bit about Property Foundations Group as well. Yeah, I'm just writing down these notes. I have a tendency tendencies you probably are aware to go off on tangents all the time so i have to make notes and stick (laughs) (laughs) we went for a very long vietnamese dinner not that long yes we did yes we did yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, so yeah in in terms of where i started so i I grew up in a builder's family my parents um, they had a, a second largest construction company in reading at the time back in the at the end of the 80s early 90s I was born in 86 so I grew up from it very very young I was I was in my dad's vans and on sites building sites uh, I remember seeing dad was building the family home when, when we were oh, when I was about four years old four or five years old I remember him saying you know all the bricks and everything and I used to have dust and I used to have tile and and then unfortunately we got hit by the recession in the 90s and that hit my family pretty hard so I, I didn't know at the time, but I was acutely aware of uh, my dad's a motorcyclist, as am I, but dad used to have quite a number of motorcycles. They all suddenly disappeared and, you know, the, the big car turned into a small car and the big house got cut in half and turned into a smaller house. And so even as a four or five year old, you were acutely aware that, that something wasn't right, even though I didn't understand it financially. So, and then my f- father carried on the business in a much smaller way about three or four people used to work with and and that's how he stayed um we moved on to a different house and he bounced back and i mean it was fine but it had quite a profound impact on the family Uh, didn't stop my old man from saying to me that property is the best place to go and put your money Uh, now what i then did was i studied as a classical guitarist you see guitars on the wall back there and i taught classical and flamenco guitar quite a number of years that was really where my passion was at uh, when I was at school, I loved computer science. I thought I'd go off to union and study computer science, but took a gap year out and um, started teaching uh, classical and flamenco guitar. And, it, and I loved it. I absolutely adore teaching. I, I, it, to me, it's like 
currency of the soul to teach people and make them improve. And by helping people and by being a teacher, what that taught me was how to articulate my message quite clearly or understand people's needs. I always had like a mantra in teaching that if a student didn't understand something, it was the teacher's fault. So that really helped me in property. So I, I, whilst I was teaching, I was buying investment property and I started off with a, my, my first house that I still live in now. I bought that house uh, and when I bought it, I was paying for a mortgage and I thought, sod that, I'm not paying the mortgage. So I moved my mates in and they paid the mortgage and gave me a little bit of a profit. I had a garage on the side and I thought, sod that, that's a waste of space. So I converted that to an apartment and I made money out of that. And I thought, oh, cool. Now I've got a house and uh, I, I, I paid for it all on credit cards. So I was trying to pay back about 1200 quid a month. And I was thinking, bloody hell, this is a bit, a bit hard. So I rang up the bank. I said, look, is there anything I can do with the mortgage? They said, well, we set a value out, seeing as you converted it. Um, and once I converted the, uh, the, into a separate flat, I had the bank come out and they valued it 70 grand more. And it only cost me 25 grand to convert which was brilliant really because then I was like, bloody hell, that was easy to make money. And my mortgage, uh, my, my credit card payments went from 1200 quid a month down to hundred quid a month. And that was really my first, uh, I suppose play with, with property investment. I'd, I'd never been taught, but yeah. I just, just had a crack really. After that successively, I did a few more buy to lets and it was always, I always got my deals direct to vendor and that was just because I helped people all the time. I used to love helping people fix their computers or help them with things in life in general. And they, they get talking to me and realize that I bought property and basically very long winded. I could talk for hours about it, but there was a lot of people that I helped. And, and what it meant was that I never, ever had to put a deposit down for any property. So I've never, I've never saved for a deposit in my life. I bought all my properties by taking an asset, increasing the value of that asset by um, uplifting the value through development or change of use or something, and, and then pulling my money back out and cracking on again. And so I built up enough of a portfolio that four or five years ago, I, I came out of teaching. Uh, I, was, I was teaching a lot of students a week. I was about hundred students a week. Uh, I was trying to run my property stuff. And then my son was born and something had to give. And so unfortunately I said goodbye to the teaching um, which was a really sad day. I love teaching to bits, but uh, something had to go. And I focused on the property because you could, once you bought a property, it can become passive. You can get a regular income and you can spend more time at home. And that's really what I wanted to do. So that's really where starting property full-time five years ago. And what do I do now? Well, I, 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 I focus more on commercial planning uplift uh, things with more complexity because once again in the property market the more complexity the more money you make the more complexity the more risk you take but if you're educated to a good level then it's like anything in life it, it's not anywhere near as scary so over the period of 10 to 12 years I learned a lot during that time uh, I, I started getting mentored about three four years ago from a few particular mentors who, who are really experienced in what they do learned a lot there learned how to raise finance learned how to work with others and raising finance, architects, planning, development, and so on. And, and so now that's really what I like to focus on, big, chunky things with loads of complexity, which I can tinker with. And projects for me normally take six months minimum, six, six to 12 months anyway. And I like to make sure that I've got lots of contingency. There's a lot of profit in them. And so I'd probably buy three, four projects a year. 
so some might consider me a slower investor, but I've got loads of contingency in place and, and I've already got to my financial freedom figure, if you want to call it that. I'm already a very contented kind of guy. I'm not, I'm not a Lamborghini Rolex wearing guy. No offense to anybody who is, but that's just not me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a simple creature. You'd probably Simple be stealing it now if you had a if you had a yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 good market for cheap Lamborghinis yeah 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 absolutely absolutely <laughs> so so the uh, the fortunate position is now that I can spend time at home work for myself as I always have done spend time with my family I can put my kids through education which is great and um, so I'm in a very comfortable place the one thing that I found with property though doing it for five years full time is that I really really lack something and, and that was teaching again and lo and behold the property foundations group was was kind of born out of that so i i ran the or i've been running the reading property meet for about four years that was a that was a hub for investors to come along to once again for me to try and educate people it, it used to be a free event we now charge 10 pound a ticket it's got a real community feel to it built lots of trust i know you've been along david yeah. uh, to it and it's just meant to be an atmosphere where people can learn and they're friendly and if they're struggling they can ask for help and there's not there's not masses about selling and we're not trying to take advantage of anybody. It's just, just a nice community to be part of. Subsequently, when we were running that event, we had people who said, well, we'd, we'd really love to be able to talk to you in more depth about particular deals. So lo and behold, the, the property coffee morning was born, which is a bit like a deal clinic. People can bring it along, bring the deals to the deal clinic. We can look at it, get a collective room of almost like a mini mastermind really to look at that. So once again, to help the community. And then what I found was that by running those two events, I found that a lot of people were, were doing education, but they weren't being educated properly. So I come from an education background and there's a lot of property investors who are good at investment, but they don't know how to teach. Mm -hmm. And there's very few teachers who are investors. Right. So I thought, okay, there's a lot of people spending a lot of money. Are they getting good value for money? For me as a teacher, my, my measurement of whether I've taught somebody well enough is if they can execute what I've taught them. And so that's where the six-month program was born. We run a six-month mentoring program. Um, it, it's fairly cheap in comparison to a lot of other programs. But what it does allow us to do is spend, spend time with people and say, look, you, you do need six months really as a minimum. Mm -hmm. A bit like me going back to the surgeon example people might be able to tell you, you become a surgeon in the weekend. They're talking out the backside. It's a complete load of garbage. It's the same with property investment. If you want to do it properly, it's a profession and you need to spend a lot of time learning uh, theoretically, but also by, by execution as well. And like with anything in life, having decent mentorship or somebody by your side to help you through those difficult times, I think is paramount. So that's really where that was born. So we now have the Reading Property Meet, we have the Deal Clinic, and then we have our education programs. And the whole idea really is to help the property community. That, that's really why, why I do it. And what I found was that gave me the currency for my soul back again. I felt like I had far more purpose to life. And uh, don't get me wrong, I do like property investing, but money in a way is a bit more of a byproduct to me. It's a means to an end. It's a form of security. Uh, I'm not in it necessarily because I want to go, I don't know, buy a spaceship or anything like that. Once again, no, no. If people want to do that, it's fine. I, I don't, I don't want to cause offense on that, but to me, it was more to provide a security blanket. And I've got that now. So now, really for me, my, my strong why behind everything is now trying to help others to get into a similar position. Can I teach them how to invest wisely? Can I teach them how to have contingency plans? Um, and what, what can I do to, to further that and, and educate people? And that's why we run our events really now. And that's why the Property Foundations Group was, 
was uh, was born, and that's where the name comes from, the Property Foundations Group. The idea is that you build a strong foundation, and if you look at our logo, you'll see it's got lots of different colours in it, about six or seven different colours, and each colour represents a different section of the group. One's management, one's investors, one's education, one's networking, and so on. And you can come and take squares if you want. You can come and do a little bit of stuff with us, or you can combine it all together and you get an A to Z service. But the idea is that you're building a strong foundation yeah. in everything that you do. And that's really where the name comes from as well. So would, you, um, sorry, would, you, would you say it's um, becoming tricky to run these mentorship programs? Just because, um, I mean, I'm not hugely involved in the property sector. Um, but what I do, whenever you hear press about property investment, very rarely positive um, experience. And there's a lot of people out there that get sort of ripped off when they're looking for that sort of thing. And what sort of due diligence do you guys do to make sure that everyone you're speaking to can afford to do the, the whole process of getting into property? And what sort of criteria do you think that someone needs to meet in order to you know, start this journey of investing? So if I get the questions right there, when you're in, in terms of the due diligence, are you talking about due diligence on speakers at our event, uh, the Reading Property Meet, or are you talking about due diligence on the individual before they come on our course? Yeah, no, from what you guys are doing as, a, as property foundations, um, because you know, some people will spend money they don't have. Um, yeah. Do, yeah, sure, sure. Do you get yeah. like, you know, breaks on that? Yeah, understanding whether somebody who wants to go and, join you know maybe join the mentor program or or any other yep. course uh, you know whether they should or shouldn't be you know doing that and i know you yeah. get an assessment so massively so uh i will well i've whenever i've had anybody interested in the program first thing i say to them is come along to the reading property meet come along to our deal clinics first because i don't want to take money away from people if they don't they don't need to spend it Likewise, if I get somebody who comes up to me who says, look, mate, I've got a CCJ, I've got no credit rating, I've got no job, blah, blah, blah. I say, look, this isn't the industry to come into at all. Don't bother. Waste of time. Um, you need money in this industry. You need to have uh, a thick skin. Stuff costs money. Even if you're starting up as a deal sourcer, it's going to cost you a grand to get everything set up, whether it's legal and everything else like that. I know there's a lot of people out there who say no money down. I get where they're coming from. They're trying to say, borrow the money from somebody else. So you don't put any of your money down. All right. Or you try and do a JV where maybe you exchange time. So somebody could say to me that they're, I don't know, they're out of work. Can they go and search for property for me? Well, well maybe, but that's once again, that's not investment. That's, that's a job. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if I've got somebody who's, who's got no work and they're not as experienced as I am, why am I relying on them to find my deals? Cause they're not going to have the same acumen. So it doesn't even make sense on that half. So I see that all the time with deal sources. Um, so yeah, definitely for, for me, it's very, very important. Once again, going back to the teaching methods that somebody should be able to execute based upon what I can teach them. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things we teach on that six month mentoring and it does involve money. And unfortunately, if we get somebody who doesn't have the money, doesn't have the right headspace, something like that, then, then yes, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't take them on. That's not to say that we, we want to put them out into the cold and say, sorry, you're not good enough. That's definitely mm. not that way. We would just say, come along to more of the Reading Property Meets, come along to the deal clinics. Um, Make maybe sure they're 100% aware. 
yeah and, and maybe shadow for some people so we, we've got a whatsapp group with about 150 investors in now and we will say to them look go out onto that group go and see if you can offer some help learn get absolutely engaged with it all but do not come into this game thinking it's a uh, get rich quick scheme because it, it, it is not and i dare say all of the schemes once again going back to what i was saying at the start of the call if there's no complexity to anything where you might make money quickly because, I don't know, enough idiots believe in it and you get a Ponzi scheme, essentially. But most of the time, you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that is really worrying is that even people who happen to go and invest in that type of stuff and they happen to be lucky, I mean, I take Bitcoin to be an example of that. Well, if they do do absolutely bugger all and they make a ton of cash for doing nothing, it's a bit like somebody going up to a fruit machine winning the jackpot. The problem is if they win it very quickly, it essentially makes them into an addict because they've just realized or they think they've got the golden touch and they haven't. And it'll always gonna... Of course it will. You know, it's, it's, it's no surprise that every single lottery winner has lost all their money, right? It's absolutely no surprise. <laughs> yeah, so over, how, 70, how... over 70% of lottery winners are bankrupt within five years. No there way. You go. Yeah. Wow. And, and the key principles on that, so really one of the big things that I do whenever I'm interviewing anybody who comes to the mentoring course is I actually look at how they spend money. How somebody spends £10, £50, £100 will indicate to me how they're going to spend 1000 10000 100000 So if I typically get somebody who comes up to me and says, look, I've got 100000 in the bank. I've been saving it for the past 20 years. I'm super cautious. And, I, and okay, cool. That's, that's great. You clearly respect money. Mm-hmm which is good. You clearly saved it, uh, which is good because you've clearly got self-discipline trying to get them over the hurdle about taking that money out of a bank account and putting it in another asset. That's my role really in terms of trying to say to them, well, actually is, is the bank a good option? Well, clearly it's not at the moment. It's 0.1%. Yeah. Right. It's just, <laughs> I'm not a financial advisor, but that's like, money, money. <laughs> right. So, so, and I don't mean to get, you know, I, I, of course I don't give them financial advice. I'm not qualified to do that. But what I do is, is I try to show them the principles and teach them how to invest in property. And so, so if I get somebody once again, who comes to me with a CCJ, I might say to them, well, how'd you get the CCJ? Because the CCJ says to me that you didn't communicate. Mm-hmm. That's what it says to me. You left it to the, to the last minute, shit hit the fan and you still didn't communicate or they serve the papers at the wrong address and you weren't aware, which is what happened to a tenant of mine. And when I found that out, I let him rent from me and he's been renting from me for the past six years and he's never missed a rent payment. You know, the poor old guy, he got a CC day, that wasn't his fault. But th- that, those things indicate to me the character type. And at the end of the day, we work with a very small uh, set of, say, six people, six to eight people. And having a good cohesive group of people who are like-minded or at least have the patience and the understanding and are going to hold out for the long term is extremely important. So we don't want to take on somebody who just flies in out of nowhere and says, by the way, we wouldn't jump on the course. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we've had David shown an interest previously. I hope you don't mind mentioning David. Oh, no, of course. Um, me and David, we, we met, so. yes, that's how we met, right? We, you know, spent two to three hours probably talking at the Reading Property Meet. We had mm-hmm. a couple of conversations after we, we've been out for dinner, and uh, hopefully, if I'm, if you can back me up on this, David, I've always said to David to to take his time and to think about it and to make sure yeah, that yeah. it's really the right thing for him. And if it's not, don't worry about it. Definitely not anything to feel pressured about. So, yeah, yeah you're totally right, Steve, that there are a some. Can I swear on this podcast or not? Yes. Yeah. 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 I just, I just have to uh, mark it as 
Uh, oh, fine. <laughs> oh, fine. Fine. Well, that's good because well, there's some real shitbag investors or shitbag trainers out there who who are absolutely full of shit. And the whole reason why I started in, one in the press again this week, wasn't there? Oh, is there? Yeah, yeah diamond dozen, right? sugar. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. We we want. Shall we mention the name? Yeah. <laughs> it's a place, place up north, hey. Uh, you, you've got the um, the the thing about it is that, that was another reason why I started the education stuff. But by being in the Reading property meet, I got to hear a lot of people got hurt or didn't have the, the right understanding or the right execution. So I remember talking to a friend of mine, very good friend of mine called Laura. She said to me, look, you've got two options. You can either get super annoyed and start going after these people, or you can set a standard. And that's really what I'm trying to do now, which is set a standard. And that standard should be of you know, good quality education where people can execute. Yes, okay, some people are going to, what I've learned over time is some people want to execute, some people don't, some people just want to learn. And then they're like, you know what, this isn't, this isn't the industry for me. That's fair enough. Um, but that's really what we're trying to do, build, build a new standard, uh, which, which isn't based on how quickly can you run to the back of the room and going up your credit card limit. And uh, if you don't take action, then you're a loser because um, whoever spouts that kind of sh- shit, uh, quite frankly, is, um, well, I'm not even going to say what they are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, see, yeah. I see some of those um, other training course people, I guess is the best way to describe them, advertising fairly heavily trying to cover the challenges that obviously have been hit. I mean, their businesses are must be hit, being hit quite heavily now. And a lot of the people that have been through those courses, but you know, mentioned like the no money down stuff, I think service accommodation has been the hot topic through a lot of those courses. And yeah. um, I think there's a lot of people facing the challenge as a result of that at the moment. So um, yeah, Difficult time. It's difficult, very difficult. Yeah, I think service accommodation is an interesting one. I, I think things like rent to rent, because you're doing rent to rent SA or you're doing rent to rent HMOs, you can do rent to rent on other stuff. But let's stick with those two principles. It's a very low low cost barrier to entry. How much do you need to get an SA apartment off the ground? Where well, you probably need about five grand by the time you're done. Deposit, get furniture, blah blah blah. Right. So it's it's not an overly difficult thing to get into. Right. Very very quick to get into. And of course, that comes with its own complexity, because if it's easy to get into, you get saturations in markets, which is what you've seen in the SA market all over the place. It's similar to the HMO market. HMO market has had quite, quite severe sections of saturation in certain areas. Once again, if anything is easy to get into, my natural default position is to go, OK, alarm bells are ringing. If it's easy to get into, well, what's it going to look like in a year's time yeah. where everybody's dog's going to be involved? So now... SA was running on thinner and thinner margins. I know of a lot of people who, who had a lot of stock. And, it, and once again, a bit like what you were saying before about uh, other businesses that were running, that after a month, they, they're, they're going bankrupt. There's a lot of people in SA who are handing back the keys and, and they're bankrupt within a month. Yeah. Once again, it just goes to show how thin a wedge they were running on. And this is unfortunately where social media comes into play because once again, it's this, this BS of, yeah, everything's working out really, really well. And look, I've got 8 million bloody units of something. You go, yeah, but you're making 50p off of each one, mate. Um, it's a pack of cards and it's going to fall down or, or you may as well just, you know, you're going to throw one simple match into that lot and it's going to burn. And I think that's what the courses don't teach particularly well is contingency planning. What happens if you do get a load of saturation? What do you need to do? How can you pivot? What are the exit plans? But once again, if we're looking at investment and we're looking at a business, serviced accommodation, in my mind, is firmly a business. 
Yeah. It's not investment in my mind. That's, that's my own personal opinion. Of it. I agree. And well, you haven't technically invested as such, have you? I mean, you're generating revenue and mm-hmm. you're not, you're, you, you haven't got a, a, a capital asset that's growing. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's investing. It's, it is running a business. And you could look at things like we, we used to have it with uh, our service accommodation where we'd have a lease option as well. So we would be saying, well, we want to lease it for three years, see how it runs. If it does really, really well, we want the option to buy it. If it doesn't run very well, we want to say goodbye. And if we say goodbye, we only want to give you one month's notice and we're willing to pay you a little bit more on the rent for that break clause to be quicker. You know, it's always about negotiating the right mix and the right deal. But unfortunately, I think what a lot of people got involved, especially in SA land was, as soon as you find a flat, oh, I'm going to earn X amount per month because that's what the trainer told me I was going to make. Yeah. Cool, I'll pay over the odds. I mean, you see it in rent-to-rent HMO land. My God, what some rent-to-rent HMO people were paying is ridiculous. Absolutely insane. I've got HMOs myself. Now, I make fourteen to sixteen hundred pounds a month out of my net profit after all my expenses, and I'm going. I'm not. There's people out there trying to do rent-to-rent HMOs with four hundred quid a month profit. You get one month, one room empty, you're buggered. Yeah. You've got, you know, the, the bloody oven goes, you're, you're, you're shafted. <laughs> yeah. Things like this. And, and so, once again, there's not necessarily contingency in that. And likewise, you'll see people who, who go and buy into properties and they say, look at my yield, the, the yield chases. I'm making 35% yield. Yeah, but your 35% yield equates to 75 quid a month. Last time I checked, a boiler is still the same cost across the country. You might be able yeah. to argue that the labor to install it's different. Still bloody expensive. Yeah. Still, yeah. So once again, you can, you can talk about yield all day long. And so you see people saying, oh, I've got massive yields. Well, great. But once again, if the contingency and the shit hits the fan, what does it look like? Well, the boiler is still going to cost you 1,500 quid whether you like it or not. What happens to your yield then? Or you might have 50 buy-to-lets up north. You go, well, that's brilliant. You're making a great monthly amount. Have you accounted for the, uh, what's the long-term plan? Oh, well, I, well, I intend to keep them until I retire. Okay. Well, have you taken into account that you're, you're 25 years old, you're going to retire probably when you're 70. I assume you've taken into account the cost of repairing each roof or replacing it. Well, no, I haven't. What about the cost of the carpets every five years? Well, I haven't done that. What about the cost of a boiler every 10 years? Or well, I've included that. Well, why do you go put that through the figures? Then go and take the fact that the capital value in the area hasn't really gone up, so you're getting wiped out by inflation anyway. Go back that into your numbers, and then the fact that you've got the, the there's so many factors at play, and, and so what I'm truly, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting a little bit slaggy off here. I shouldn't really do it, to be honest. I just get a little bit, a little bit frustrated by it, as you probably tell, but there isn't protection. People are looking at one thing, and they think that's success. I've got 100 SA units. I'm successful. Hopefully you are if there's enough contingency. I've got 100 buy-to-lets. Well, hopefully you are if there's enough contingency. I'm doing a development. Okay, great. But if you're making 5% profit, I hope that's enough contingency. Yeah. And that's not, what, that's not what's talked about in the property game at all. And so that's why you see a lot of people getting, getting slammed because they just don't talk about exit plans and contingency. And with anything in investment, the people who last in this game are the people who are prepared to protect themselves and, 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 and this is a prime example. We see after COVID, how many of the real investors are still sticking about because they'll still be the ones who've got their portfolio still hanging. And unfortunately, you'll see the cycle again, Steve, where you'll get yeah, a load of other trainers jump on the bandwagon with some new thing. The next breed of, of people will come in and they'll take advantage of them. 
make a shit ton out of them and, and you see the repeated cycles and unfortunately that's uh it's very difficult to protect against because you, you it's not it's not necessarily the courses you're dealing with it's it's human nature and human nature is how do i make some you know how do i make a fast buck quickly because of my particular emotional position in life and unfortunately there's people who take advantage of that all day long it's it's a shit game well and also it's motivated by people who are the same you know the people running the courses are in the same boat as the people joining the courses uh, you know they're they're probably wanting to make a quick buck too so <laughs> everyone's everyone's doing this thing and so you've got the people who go in on the course because they want to make a quick buck and you've got the people running the course because they want to make a quick buck and the end result is no one's any better off yeah yeah it's definitely there are definitely some trainers out there who are like that there's um i think I think training costs a lot of money to get it off the ground if you get decent people involved uh, because they, any decent investor who's got any decent acumen in the game would have probably had the best part of 10 years worth of experience as a minimum. And actually, if you, if you look at the amount of money you can make in property, if you're good at it, it it's very, it's a lot, you know, it's considerable. You're probably talking 60 to 70 grand minimum out of a deal, yeah. or at least that, that's how I would navigate in terms of my particular deals. And if you then go and say, well, if I go and do four of those a year, doing all not right. including the rental, I mean, but where, where do you, where do you get to the price point where you go, well, actually I do want to go and train a bunch of people on a Saturday. Yeah. And so there is a very difficult balance because it is an industry you can make a lot of money in. Yeah. So you either get people who do it because they love it and they want to protect an industry. I probably mm -hmm. class myself in that particular realm. Uh, and, and there are numerous people who I know who are like that. They, they, do, they charge peanuts for their courses or they charge just enough to cover the hotel costs, for example. You know, it costs a grand a day in London to even rent a room for a day, let alone all the other costs of running it and stuff. So they do need to make their money back. But yes, there are, there are definitely people who go out there. And I think, I think the ones that you can tell who are the unethical types, the ones who say, um, come along to my free weekend or even pay for my weekend and now you get to sit here and basically listen to my inflated ego for the next eight hours and uh try and upsell you onto a stupidly ridiculously expensive course well that trainers lie to the bloody teeth from the get-go i mean why the hell you'd want to spend more money with them i don't know you just basically paid or you've gone along to to a free event where you're just sold to it's no different than bloody timeshare is it really <laughs> it is the new timeshare <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're absolutely right yeah, so it'd be interesting to see what happens with all of this and how that will affect some of the other lar the larger training providers because uh, I would imagine a bit like most other businesses, they were very reliant on high cash flow. Um, it'd be interesting to know how set up they were for, for this kind of situation. I think for a lot of trainers, there's not a huge amount of overhead. Yes, you've got like renting out hotel rooms and stuff like that, which you can turn off pretty immediately because you say, well, COVID-19. Uh, in terms of what a lot of trainers do, they go online. Well, that's fine because that's the new format. And if, if they were thinking ahead, they probably already got online programs already developed. I'm certainly developing ours out at the moment to be, to be online. That was always in the plan. It's just, it's now been accelerated just because I've got more time at home as well. Yeah. So that's convenient, which is good. In terms of cash flow, I think it depends on what the trainer's like. If the uh, if the trainer's got an expensive taste for caviar and champagne every day, and um, you know has to walk on I don't know heated heated marble floors and has a few um, there's probably yeah, a few of them a few out servants 
that uh, yeah, you could probably argue that yes, they're struggling, struggling in life. Uh, but I, I can't, I can't really see many people. If anything, you'll probably find a lot of these trainers will go online. They've probably got a bigger reach online anyway because people don't have to travel down. They're probably going to sell loads more courses, and it's just stack it high, sell it cheap, and they'll probably do something where they say, "Oh, we'll give you a bigger discount if uh, if you join now, and and we deliver the course when everybody can can get that out of the house." So I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on the cash flow personally. Interesting. I, 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 it strikes me as the type of business that, once again, very, very cheap to run in the grand scheme of things, very easy to turn on and off and to adapt very rapidly. Fair. So for anyone who is maybe considering <coughs> getting into, into property, what would you say was the first thing to, to think about um, before, before going too far? Definitely, you, you can learn a lot online as in YouTube and lots of other clips. Mm-hmm. Definitely you can. The thing you've always got to watch out for is that if you're watching something from an educational standpoint, you go, bloody hell, that sounds easy. Amazing. I, I've come across a secret. I can tell you now you haven't. Mm-hmm. It's damn sight more complex. That's not to say I'm being a negative Nancy and, you know, quash your dreams. What it means is, is that go to look for the complexity in that and really what you want to do is find somebody with a season track record you can talk to anybody who's got a decent track record and is a nice person has actually made you know, decent money out of property is I would say nine times out of 10 booking a half an hour call with them. Um, I say, take them out for a virtual coffee, take them out for a lunch. They should give you their time. Sometimes people are really busy. They might say, look, I haven't got the time. That's a good thing by the way. So go and Try and find something that you're interested in. Go and find somebody who's got some experience in that. Go look online. Go look at forums. Type their name into Google. Go and do your due diligence. Look at companies' house. Look at the limited companies. Look at all the various different bits and pieces. Uh, when you find somebody that you might be interested in, whether it's being educated with or working alongside or something like that, ask them hard questions. Mm-hmm. Never hold back. Decent people in this industry will, will like the fact that you ask hard questions. Why was there this loss on your company, blah? Why was this a bad article here, whatever? If you find that the individual you're talking to gets emotional, it's a bit arsy with you or a bit uppity, run a million miles away. Mm-hmm. They're egotistical. They need their, their, their ego stroked and they don't like being offended. I'm sorry, this is not the game to be in if you get easily offended. So <clears throat> that's what I'd say in the early stages. I think uh, go along to networking events, definitely. Uh, there's some really, really great networking events across the country. Take them for what they are. Some of them have a lot of upselling in, some do not. Go along to independent property meets. There's, there's some national ones, which, which are good, but go along to independent ones because normally the independent ones are run by seasoned individuals who are just in it for the love. That's definitely what they're in them for. So to so go along to those. And there are so many events going online, it's untrue. So if you can't make it to these face-to-face ones, and of course you can't at the moment, or at least when this podcast is being recorded, but, but try to start to create a diary where you get to go along on a regular basis. And so my final point on that is, is that go to these events, get seen, go on a regular basis. You'll see the real, the, the, the seasoned ones because they come on a regular basis. There's a lot of people who come in and out that they, they, they won't last. And, and really uh, property, at the, at the most, most important part of property is relationships. It's a people game. You're going to be dealing with lots of people, whether that's tenants, whether that's uh, stakeholders, banks, finance solicitors, whatever, loads of people. And so you need to get on well with people. 
and that involves trust and that takes time and you need to build that over time so you can start to do that in networking events now and you'd be surprised at what opportunities come out of the woodwork when you regularly go to these events you help others out you're just a good human being and you'll be surprised how many people will, will try and help you or, or, or make you feel comfortable. So, so that's really my advice. And then, okay, if you feel that you need more structured learning because you are that character type, I mean, like for me, I know that I need to sit in a room. I need to be engaged. And if I'm in a room, I don't want to disappoint the person who I'm going to see. So I know I'll turn my phone off. I know I won't check my emails. I need to be that guy. That's the, uh, that's the ADD in me. Uh, I, I need to, I need to be focused. I need to be in depth a bit. Then, then, you know, I, I really like those courses. I like courses where you get to do things and watch videos and stuff like that. So online courses don't suit me particularly well. I get bored too quickly. You know, I go off on a tangent. I, I, I'm not overly a fan of reading. It's a frustrating thing for me. Uh, I, I skip words and stuff like that. So it, it's a bit frustrating. So yes, there are structured courses out there. They will cost money. Talk to people who've done the courses previously. Uh, see if there's any way if you haven't got the money necessarily in the early stages to go and see if you can crew for the individual for free mm. pretty much guarantee you most most uh, education companies need people to crew and uh, they really appreciate the help so definitely ask even if they don't have that opportunity just ask yeah uh, a lot of people in property will, will like the fact that you have the let's say the guts and, and then the backbone to go and ask and, and see what you can do to help as well so that that would be my very long-winded response to your uh, to your very short question that was good it's good uh steve have you got any uh, further questions for adam before we oh, i think we, covered we know lots of lots of stuff there i think it's um, really good i think good information for newbies which is um certainly what i wanted to get out of this yeah uh, the other thing to add sorry i forgot as well was listening to podcasts these are always quite good as well Good plug. Any you recommend? <laughs> yeah. oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. We'll yeah, definitely have you back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, this podcast all day long, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Amazing. It. Well, fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Um, we'll make sure there's links to yourself and the Property Foundations group um, across Thank our you. website and our social. Um, I know you've got to run and uh, host a, an event this evening, a virtual event yep. this evening. So we'll let you get off and do that. But thank you very, very much for your, all your time. And um, you'll be back on here before too long, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the invite. I'm glad I could be of help. And just to any listeners out there as well, apologies for jumping around on tangents all over the place. And it can be <laughs> a bit weird. I've had numerous people say that I go off on a tangent. Surprising, really, that I used to be a teacher, isn't it, really? But um, <laughs> I hope a lot of it made sense. I hope a lot of people got nuggets of information out of it. And if anybody wants to talk in more depth, uh, you can go to our website, which I'm sure will be put on, on the podcast and so on. Uh, there's a contact section. If you go on there, you can actually book in a phone call. It links in with my diary. Just click in, type your name in, it will post it in my calendar and then I'll be having a phone call with you. So if anybody's got any questions or anything I've spoken about on the podcast that they want me to go into more detail, feel free to jump on there as well. I'm an open book, more than happy to, to spend time and help people out. Uh, totally for free, no upsells guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Superb. Thanks very much, guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Cheers, Adam. Great. Thanks, guys. See you soon. See ya.